Hello and welcome to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute. My name is Jed Brocky, and this is episode number 27. Today I'm going to be interviewing a guitarist, composer and musical director by the name of Terry Wallman. If you haven't heard of Terry Wallman, then you should have, because he has literally played with some of the biggest names in the music industry, including people like Stevie Wonder, Michael McDonald, Joe Walsh, Eartha Kitt and a whole lot more. That's coming up very shortly. The GMI Guitar Music Institute podcast is about all things guitar. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, then I would encourage you to do so. We've got so much material from so many incredible people who are players, inventors, guitar builders, and everything in between. So please check out all our back podcasts. If you enjoy this episode, come on over and find out more about Terry. There are plenty of videos of him playing and actually you can hear some of his albums as well as links to all his site. I hope you really enjoy this very affable, friendly and impressive musician, Terry Bowman. Terry, it's great to have you in the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here on your show. Yeah, well, uh, let's see how it goes. I've got to be honest, when I looked at your uh, wiki page, it's pretty impressive. And I'd well, love to. I know you want to. Uh, you want to talk about your new record that's out, or your new. Uh, see how old I am. New record. You know, a new digital artifact that's out. <laughs> My new music. <laughs> your new music. But I it's think still called music. It's still yeah. For how long? I'd also maybe like to have a little blether about all these incredible people that you've worked with. It takes quite some reading it's quite impressive maybe for all the folks out in the world who are listening to this could you give us a little potted history i see you started out at berkeley college of music yeah i actually started a little further back than that i was born and raised in miami florida and went to school there and then moved to to boston to go to college and got a degree in arranging from berkeley and then tried to figure out what to do with the rest of my life or or where to do it and was thinking of moving back home, possibly New York or Los Angeles, and I chose Los Angeles. I moved here in 1981. And uh, how do you find Los Angeles? I've actually been there. I couldn't believe how many Mexicans live there. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's just myself and my partner were walking up the roads, and uh, we were the only white folk there, and that is not a racist comment. It's just an actual fact. No, it's just an observation. It's heavily populated by by Mexicans and um, people from all over the world. Um, how did I find Los Angeles? Um, I found it um, challenging. Uh, it felt like a big city when I moved here and, and hard to break through. I had come to Los Angeles when I was younger, you know, just traveling and remember coming to the city and it was during the the thick of summer and it was smoggy and crowded and i i'm sort of made a little personal vow to myself that i would never live in a city like los angeles having grown up in miami with you know beautiful water and clean skies and all that so i i found myself a little um um a little bit of inner conflict when i made a decision to come to la but you know it, it has served me well i've made a a beautiful life here. I've made amazing friendships uh, and have had the opportunities that I came out here to have, which is to work with the best 
musicians in the world. Let's go into that a wee bit. How did you actually break through? Can you remember how, I mean, usually it all works through relationships, right? So what was the, what was the first relationship that you had in terms of the music business that really meant that you weren't just playing pubs for $10? Right. And by, by the way, the $10 pub gigs happened simultaneously with all of the other um, opportunities that were, were bigger and more lucrative or more um, visible. Um, I think it was simultaneously, it was two things. Uh, I, you know, I was advised to, well, a couple things, but I was advised when I came out here, I started meeting people and session players and people that I had heard of and read their names on the back of records. And, and I would just go hear them in clubs and introduce myself to them. And, and they were encouraging and supportive. Um, but they, they basically said, go play with everybody. You know, don't say no to say yes to every opportunity, you know, to go play in every pub and every concert. And so I, I started doing that, you know, anytime I had a chance to go play with a band, I would play with them. Um, however, simultaneously, two things happened. One, I was introduced to um, Sid Garris and George Greif, who were the managers of the Crusaders, you know, Joe Sample and the Crusaders, which is where I, uh, I started my friendship and, and working relationship with Joe and with those guys. Um, they also, um, these, this management company also managed a group called the New Christie Minstrels. So while I was waiting to get to meet Joe, and, and which led to working with the Crusaders and working with Joe for years and him becoming a mentor and friend of mine as well, but um, they had me do some work, music directing work and arranging work for the New Christie Minstrels. That sounds like a sweetie. <laughs> you know so and i reminded myself that i it would be wise to be saying yes to everything even if it was something that didn't feel like where i necessarily wanted to go so i did that what what did sorry but what sort of music did the uh the the new christy minstrels play What, what was that then they were like a just sort of an americana group they were like a group of you know rotating group of 10 people that but people like Kenny Rogers and Kim Carnes, you know, um, Roger McGuinn from the birds, a lot of people went through that camp. It was sort of like a folk group that traveled the world. They were minstrels, you know, up with people kind of, you know, it was a similar group. And they just sang This Land is Your Land and, you know, folk songs, a la, you know, Joan Baez and Pete Seeger, and, which I liked. You know, I mean, I was a fan of folk music. Um, but this was a group I was never going to be in, but it turned out that I was a good asset to them and it was a good way for me to make some money helping do casting for them and, and running some rehearsals and writing some arrangements. I, I even ended up playing with guitar with them, guitar for them once or twice. What were the costumes for, like, Terry? Um, they were very, I never wore, did I? <laughs> no, I, I guess I did. Ah, I you've blanked that wore, one out, haven't you? You've blanked that out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. It totally wiped it out of my memory. Um, I I must have worn one of the costumes for when I performed with them at this one event that I remember. But it was it was pretty simple. It was very conservative and and sort of white. Not everybody in the group was white, but it was just sort of American, you know. So like it was it was friendly. It might have been like you know a vest and a clean shirt, and you know, um, it, it wasn't. Um, much more of a costume than that from what I remember, but it was, it was pretty clean cut and conservative. And, and that was, I wasn't really clean cut, 
um, or conservative. So were these guys aiming for the deep south, you know, the Bible Belt and all that? They were, but they, yeah, they were aiming. For, they, they had hits in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they were on the radio. And like I said, some some pretty major artists came out of that group. So, yeah, but they would play stand-up bass and guitars and banjos and sing and, you know, guys and girls and um, just very uplifting, um, you know, sing-along kind of music. So Deep South, but also, you know, they traveled the world. You know, they 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 were a very large group. So I, I ended up, you know, working with them sort of on the management side and, and more musical side not being in the group, but that led to me working directly with Joe Sample and the Crusaders. And also at the same time, the, I was told that I was going to need to get a, a day job when I moved out here to make some money. And one of the teachers from Berkeley College, now students, one of the teachers from one of the top schools in the world was out here working for this company that was parking cars, you know, a valet company. And so I contacted him and he said, I've got a job for you. Um, you know, I said, oh, great. What is it? He said, parking cars. I said, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. He goes, you might want to take the job. So I took the job. It was part time and I parked cars on the weekends, actually at the Playboy Mansion at Hugh Hefner's house. All right, yeah. On the weekend. So I was they were long hours, but it left me a lot of hours during the week to practice and pursue other. Tell me, did you get would you get a good wage for parking someone's rich person's car then? No, <laughs> but it was. It I thought was, you were going to tell me something good there. <laughs> no, it was a steady wage. Uh, we were because it was at Hefner's house. We weren't supposed to take tips. All right. So they paid us an extra dollar an hour Whoa. to not take tips. But every once in a while, you know, somebody would stick a twenty-dollar bill in your pocket, you know, and you would say, "I, I can't." They go, "No, please." And so, you know, there there were some really nice people. But at the point is, out of that. Uh, experience, I ended up playing in a garage band, literally with a drummer and a bass player. And we would just play, um, you know, once we get together and, and play and record. And the drummer who became a good friend of mine and was parking cars with me was Billy Preston's drummer. Okay. And out of that, I watched, I watched my friend Jared go out on two world tours, you know, in the time we were working together. And he came back one time and the second time or third time. And I, and I said, I'm only going to ask you this one time, you know, because we're friends and I don't want to compromise our relationship. But I didn't move to L.A. to park cars. I moved here to play music. If there's ever an opportunity for me to audition for Billy Preston, I would be so grateful. And if that comes up, thank you. You know, and and it came up you know, after, he, after asking him 10 more times. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I held true to my word. I didn't bug him about it. Right. Um, and I think partially because of that, when an opportunity opened up, you know, he told Billy, he goes, I got a friend. He's a great guitar player. And I was in there the next day, you know, auditioning. And so how did the audition go? Do you remember? Oh, I do. Um, there were, there were only two people auditioning for the the position of guitar, myself and another British guitar player whose name I don't remember. That guy's probably we, now died. He's probably dead <laughs> now. He went and become a tragic alcoholic and killed himself. <laughs> sure, and it's all your fault, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> you got that on your conscience. I can live with that. <laughs> um, the, this is the only audition that I've ever had where they introduced the two of us and then made the two of us play together 
at the same audition. So we essentially competed. Um, <laughs> and, and it was a, the oddest thing. I didn't even know how to, how to approach, you know, being in a situation like that. It's not anything you learn in school or that you know, you, there's nothing that can prepare you for that kind of, kind of crazy decision. But, um, so I went in, everybody else had already been in the band and this other guitar player was friends with Billy Preston. So it was kind of loaded, you know, and he was some, um, so anyway, we went in and we all just started playing, you know, Billy was singing and the band was playing. It was really loud. I remember that. And I also remember that I was playing so loud, but I couldn't hear myself. Like I couldn't tell. It's just a nightmare well, that one with your ears itching. It's true. And it, yeah. And, but, but the thing is I couldn't tell who was playing, whether it was me or the other guitar player. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I can't tell Billy can't tell either. So I better do something about this. So I turned around and literally turned my amp up to 10, which I never <laughs> uh, Surely not 11. Why didn't you put it up to 11? <laughs> I, I, yeah, well, the, fortunately, 10 was enough because I turned it up and then I just went right up to Billy and right up by the B3 and just in his face, just started playing and smiling and, and, and having the best time that I could have. And I got the gig. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, I, 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 a sudden silence there. I, I thought well, you. No, I, I mean, and from that, <laughs> and, well, you know, a couple of weeks later, um, I was, you know, they basically they told me to go to Motown, which was on Sunset Boulevard, the record label, and go pick up records. And they, I showed up, and they had probably you know twenty Billy Preston's LPs, you know, full size albums, no, no written music, no charts no list of songs and basically just said, well, just go learn everything. You know, so I went and just started learning Billy Preston songs by needle dropping, picking up the needle, putting ah, it back. The good old days. The good old days. And again, um, you know, just learned everything I could. And then uh, we got to Europe and uh, <laughs> just, I, this is so amazing. So we get there and Billy starts to play a song that not wasn't on any list. I'm not even sure if it was on any of the 20 records that I had. So apparently I was supposed to know everything <laughs> you know, from the catalog, you know? And so I, I panicked for a second and then I just figured I better start listening and watching and learning as quickly as I can. Did you turn out the, the, the amp up to 10 and go up to him and start smiling? No, at that point I turned it back down to six <laughs> and just tried to do my job because I already had the job, uh, but I was smiling. I was smiling a lot because I was thrilled to be there. Are you kidding me? It was, you know, that's what I trained for and to be in, in Europe with the fifth Beatle and, you know, and, and, you know, playing rock concerts, it was pretty exciting. So how long did that gig last for? Uh, it, <laughs> this is a great story too. It, it only lasted about six weeks. Uh, so you we, learned 20 albums and it only lasted <laughs> for six weeks. You, that's what yeah. I call being shortchanged. <laughs> well, we, literally we were shortchanged also because we spent, we spent about a month in Germany, uh, just playing and, and busing all over Germany, which was remarkable, including going, uh, into Eastern Germany at the time when the wall was up and being, in Berlin, which is an, an amazing, exciting city once you got, you know, past the guards. Uh, but then we spent, I think we had about a week or two in London and 
a couple of the shows got canceled. So we were left to our own devices just to walk around and, you know, have fun. I didn't know anybody, um, but at least I was in a country that, that spoke the language that I spoke English. And, uh, and then we did our concert and came back and I made the mistake of asking to be paid for the, the time that I was in England when we weren't working. Um, because all, and all of the musicians agreed that we needed to be paid because we were over there and there, which meant we couldn't work anywhere else. So, um, we all agreed to stand together united and, you know, and ask to get paid. And then they never gave me the memo that, um, they had decided that they were going to ununite and we were, it was every man for himself. And so I was the only one left standing when we got back in town saying we, you know, we all agreed that we need to be paid for the, the, the concerts that were canceled because we were there and, uh, I got fired. I got replaced. And did you ever get your money? No, you know, and, and I had to make a decision. It, I mean, I had to make a decision that was that sort of set the course of my career, which is what am I going to do? Am, am I going to let somebody walk all over me, you know, and just let, you know, let them be disrespectful or lie or whatever and not pay and just continue to head off to with the next part of the tour was to Africa, which I really wanted to go to. But, um, you know, I just thought, well, how do I know if they're going to pay me for that? So I thought I, I need to stand for what's right. And that's what I did. And they didn't want to have people around that did that, you know, that they couldn't manipulate. So I did get replaced. And, and it was disappointing. But, but I feel in hindsight that that, that was the right decision. Yeah, totally, you know, because to, you need to eat, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of, right. So, so, I mean, these other guys, it's funny you should bring this up because – I've been very lucky in my career in terms of never being ripped off until last year. <laughs> After That's kind of remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely it. remarkable. Um, I eventually got my money, but, um, but I, I don't think it was an English band that came up and they were wanting a guitarist and mm -hmm. basically said £300 for a night's work. And... Uh, it was the usual, you know, or you'll get paid cash at the end of the night because they were going back down to England at the end of the right. night. Did I get paid the £300 cash at the end of the night? I don't think so, according <laughs> to where this is going. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Anyway, <laughs> eventually I got it. But it's such a, a terrible feeling that, and I, I totally uh, understand. You just feel... Well, just it's hard to put into words how you feel you've been taken a loan of and being lied to and all the rest of it. So yeah, you're being disrespected and and um, and lied to and and not treated professionally, and and it doesn't feel good. Especially you when know? I found and, out later that this band were making an astonishing amount of money that well, night. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But you know, there's there there are many experiences in the record business, especially when it used to be where management companies when they were dealing with rock stars and pop stars wanted to make sure that the the side musicians never felt too comfortable they needed to know that they were replaceable so every once in a while i think they would just throw somebody under the bus to to make their point that bus it. but look at bill nelson i mean he's still fighting after all these years with his albums of bebop deluxe i mean he has right you know he never received a penny right um, right so i mean it's, it's well, so many stories like that in fact a friend of mine uh, who's a composer who's actually on the podcast, Hummy Man. He's mm -hmm. good mates with 
the guy uh, who was the bass player in um, Spinal Tap. You know the bass player in Spinal Tap, the movie? Yes, I do. I don't remember who, who played yeah, which part. Yeah, I can't, can't remember his, his name now, but I mean, they've actually got a lawsuit going on. I think it's still going on <laughs> for all the mm-hmm. money they never got from that movie. Yeah. Well, look, the music business has never been the most ethical business. No. So, so anyway, uh, leaving all that horrible stuff behind, uh, you've got no money in your pockets. What happened next? <laughs> um, what happened was I came back. Um, I got my uh, old car parking job back uh, and did, did, did that you sell for the records? a little. Pardon? Did you sell the records? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but then, but then I then I put my own band together because I came back and I thought, you know, this was great. I wanted to continue to tour with other artists because I really loved the experience. I still wanted to be making records and being a studio musician. So I just put my nose you know, down and put my head down and headed continuing in the direction that I wanted to continue in with this now that I had some touring experience because there's nothing like touring that can prepare you for touring. You know, it, it brings your game up. You know, um, you think you're playing music until you get out on a stage and do a concert. And then you realize that the energy level needs to be cranked up many, many notches. It doesn't mean louder. It just means the intensity. So, you know, so I had that that um, awareness until when I started bringing that into everything else I did. And I, I put a band together. I started playing in other bands. I, I was writing music for my band. To play and started playing in clubs around Los Angeles and and other parts of California, maybe Northern California or you know the Western region. Occasionally going back to Miami and performing and you know or in Boston and and just developed. And I I decided to make my own record, my first record in 1988 as a solo artist. And I I knew it was something that I could do and wanted to do, and I did it. And I brought in all these remarkable musicians that I had met from doing studio work. And that became, that began my career as a, as a solo artist. So if you're in LA, have you played the baked potato? You know, something I haven't, isn't that funny? You're going to have to play there, man. (laughs) I know. I mean, I've, I've been there since 1981, but I, that's not, I don't think that's a club I've ever played. And it's a, it's a very cool room. I've, I've probably played up every other room in, in town. I'm right in thinking that uh, Larry, Larry Carlton's played there, right? Oh yeah, that's where and, I used to see. Yeah, and one and he's worked a lot with uh, Abe Laborio, hasn't he? Right, and, and you've I, worked I, with him. I've right, I've worked. A- Abraham Laborio Senior has played bass on every one of my albums, um, my solo albums. Where we became dear friends. Through, I met him through Joe Sample and the Crusaders. Abraham introduced me to. Um, Larry Carlton and, and a lot of the other amazing musicians that I've gotten to know. And, uh, you know, Luis Conte and, you know, I met Gerald Albright later from working in television. Gerald ended up being in my, my band. He was a sax player in my band when I, when I got my second TV show as a music director. So, uh, but yeah, the, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it came from meeting musicians like Abraham Laborio, Dean Parks also. The wonderful guitarist. Well, Abraham, Abraham Laborio is an amazing uh, musician. I, I remember listening to all those uh, albums back in the day when Larry had lots of hair. Funnily enough, <laughs> f- f- funnily enough, I mean, when people think of Scotland, they only think of two places, right? Glasgow or Edinburgh. 
but right. there's there's a small there's a a medium sized town uh, south of uh, Glasgow called Kilmarnock, and about fifteen miles from Kilmarnock, there's a tiny little village which is names escapes me. I have actually played this festival. I mean, it's a small small place, and. Larry Carlton played there <laughs> about six or seven years ago, and I went to see That's him. Fantastic. It's unbelievable. I mean, honestly, there's, there's, it's a tiny village of about, I don't know, 2,000 people. And, uh, and Larry Carlton plays, he had his son on yeah. the days. Larry Carlton played the, that, I can't remember the, the name of it, which is bugging me because I've actually done it myself. The, the people well, it, run it is incredible. So there you, you know, by the way, I mean, in very similar feeling when I moved to L.A. and and met Abraham, he said, oh, I'm playing at the Baked Potato with Larry Carlton. Come see me. And we went out there and, and there were more people on stage than there were in the audience. And I oh, really? couldn't even, That's I, unbelievable. I couldn't even wrap my head around it. It's like I'm sitting like, you know, six feet, you know, from Larry Carlton hearing him play you know, with all these amazing musicians and, you know, it, it wasn't completely sold out. I mean, I think it was a fluke. It might've been a rainy Tuesday night or something, but just the idea rainy, that, that rainy, a rainy day in LA, surely not. Well, it hit the news. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell us about, uh, you've, you've produced a lot of things and arranged a, a, a lot of shows and you've in, indeed you've been on uh, shows such as Scrubs and the Tonight Show, the Late Show, all very interesting, Terry. Can you can you uh, just fill us in? Tell us all about that. I'm sure you've got a few stories to tell. Absolutely. Well, I I am a record producer as well. I've always produced my own records um, because it's something I love doing. And uh, but I, but I produce other artists as well. And the, in the last couple of years, I co-produced Melissa Manchester's twentieth record. You got to love the life, which was a really wonderful experience. And we brought in. Guest artists including Stevie Wonder, Al Jarreau, Dionne Warwick, Dave Koz, Joe Sample. Um, it was just fantastic to to be able to produce a project like that. So, so could you tell us about the, the production process in that, Terry? That I think people would be really interested in that. I mean, I take it the, the guys weren't all in the room at the same time, were they? Well, the, uh, the, Melissa wanted to record old school, so the rhythm section and you know, recorded live with Melissa. So we actually did track together and then we brought in the guest artists. So, um, you know, these guest artists that I just named, they came in afterwards as an overdub. But other than that, we were all in the studio together playing. Um, I was sitting at the, the, the control room, you know, at the desk, um, producing and giving notes. I did end up playing guitar on the record as well, which was not the original uh, plan, but when we were recording one song, um, she's she's got uh, has had a wonderful um, music director. She always has great music directors. Peter Hume, you know, for many many years. Also, Stefan Oberhoff, who plays piano and guitar brilliantly and sings. So, so Stefan was playing some guitar parts, and then I had an idea. So he gave me his guitar, and I showed him the part, and everybody loved it. And he just said, "Well, why don't you play it?" You see, Terry, and you need a you need a, a a much bigger name. This is the thing. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to change my name to Jed Caracas. I think I think that'll work. You know. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, so anyway, I you know I asked Melissa, and she she said, "Yeah, absolutely." I mean, we need to make sure it didn't create any 
um, contractual problems or anything like that. If you know, but so I ended up playing on the record as well, which was great. Uh, and it was just very collaborative process. You know, each each album that I produce and and each situ- situation is different. With Melissa, I wanted her to be very hands on and be collaborative, so that. I could, as I told her, I said, I, I want to make your record. I'm not making my record. So you weren't arranging this? Um, we, yeah, there was arranging involved as well. Um, and that was collaborative as well. I did one more formal arrangement where I co-wrote a horn arrangement with Lee Thornburg, who's a, a wonderful trumpet player arranger. Um, we decided to collaborate together. So we wrote, we wrote physically on paper an arrangement, and Melissa was involved in that as well. Everything else was was uh, the arrangements were kind of collectively done. You know, I she would have some ideas. I would have some ideas. The band would depending on if it was a new song, there would be more arranging involved. The older songs, the band already knew and they they had been playing it. So I would make adjustments to make the their arrangements work. So how, how, how long was the, the, the total session then? We we recorded the album in a week. You know, the actual the rhythm section, I think we had, uh, it was four or five days of, you know, and we would do three songs a day, you know, old school, and do some overdubs, and, and then Melissa would sing, re- sometimes re-sing her parts, or sometimes keep the, the parts that she had originally done with the band. So when it comes to production in terms of costs, who was deciding the budget so you could get guys of the caliber of Stevie Wonder in? To name just one of the, the many. Well, um, this was, it's all, that's always a different situation as well. And I'll give other examples in a moment. But with Melissa's record, this was her first uh, really full uh, record as an independent artist that she was involved in as a co producer. So there wasn't a huge budget. You know, it was being, she, she actually financed it through one of the GoFundMe accounts, you know, and because she was teaching. Um, songwriting master classes at USC and all her young students were just crank doing fundraising and cranking out albums. So she asked me about it. We talked about it. And one of her students actually ran a a campaign and raised the money for her. And, uh, and it became a very collaborative process with the fans as well, which is a great experience for all of us. So, um, Regarding how do we afford Stevie Wonder and Al Jarreau and all those great people, we just asked. You know, my my philosophy, because I'm coming at it as an independent artist, that, you know, we scale a scale. You know, there's a, there's a certain amount of money that you need to at least offer people so that it's it's not disrespectful. And it's not necessarily their full artist rate, you know, if they're going to come in and get 20 grand or 50 grand or a hundred grand to, to, to do what they do. That wasn't going to happen on this record, but if we put them on the contract and paid them, you know, reasonably and fairly, uh, we just asked, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And quite frankly, all of those people that came in, they weren't even concerned about the money. They were just happy to be, uh, you know, supporting Melissa and being a part of this record. And as a matter of fact, Al Jarreau, heard about the record because Lenny Castro was playing percussion with us. And then Lenny was doing a new record with Al and they were talking about it and they actually called the studio and Lenny called Melissa and said, Hey, a friend of ours wants to say hi. He, you know, he put Al on and Al said, I heard you're making a record. I want to sing on it. You know, so we, that's how that, 
that work just sort of energetically. Sometimes artists just come together and want to make music together. So it's difficult times. The music industry. How how did the album do? It did fine. You know, it um, it charted. You know, so it got radio play. It got on the charts. We were on the ballot for the Grammys. Um, it got multiple. Um, it was included in multiple categories. It did not get a Grammy nomination or a Grammy, which um, I was a little uh, su- little surprised and um, honestly disappointed for Melissa because it was well-deserved. Um, but it still got a lot of wonderful attention, great reviews. And because there was, um, it was paid for by this, um, you know, Kickstarter, you know, she, it was, it paid, it was paid for, you know, so it was a good situation. Um, there, nobody got in debt doing this and, and then she was able to go out and tour and support the record. So well, that's a big um, plus. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So, you know, so it did fine. And she went on and just did a, another record recently that, I didn't produce, but I but I wrote a, an orchestral arrangement and conducted a song for her, and it was also really beautiful. It was a standards record, but you know, there's other situations like like last year, I I worked on a movie that came out on HBO that's called If You're Not in the Obit, Eat Breakfast. It's a documentary with Carl Reiner uh, hosting it, and it turned out it was about people in their 90s and hundreds who were having really cool, fun, active joyful lives. But it turned out that there were three musical artists that I ended up producing for this movie. And one of them was Dick Van Dyke. And then that led to me producing Tony Bennett and also Alan Bergman with Dave Grusin. So they were all different situations. Those had movie budgets. Um, they were so the in a situation like that, the director of the movie just said, you know, we have a certain amount of money. It's not unlimited because it's a documentary and it's not a, you know, feature hundred million dollar film, but can we do this? Is there a way to do this? And so I helped him put it together and budget it and contracted the musicians and, you know, went to New York to produce Tony Bennett with Tony's band and the other two artists, I put the bands together, you know, and, and that was a different situation, but they ended up filming us and, and, those are up on those songs are up on iTunes. They're, they came out great as well. Fantastic. Now, someone I've got to ask you about is uh, actually that time that uh, I was in LA, went to Sunset Boulevard, and there was a record store, and we went into the record store, and it was just absolutely perfect because we had we had Michael McDonald oh, coming, yeah. coming over. <laughs> it was just so right, you know. Good Scottish yeah. name, that, McDonald. Anyway, McDonald. Um, tell me about uh, Michael McDonald. Uh, you've worked with him, is that correct? I, I have. Um, and I worked. I had worked with him on television on one of the late night talk shows that I had music directed, uh, you know, years before. And then one of my friends was playing, uh, Charles Fertel was playing bass and singing in his band for years. I On one of my records, I wanted to record a song that he had co-written called Our Love. I always thought that was a wonderful, fantastic tune. And I thought it would be amazing if Michael would sing on it. So I asked my friend and he reached out to Michael. And we, since we had met before, the conversation continued and he said, yes, he would be happy to do it. And then months went by and trying to, you know, chase the schedule down and everything. And, and it finally happened. And I went 
Um, I ended up flying to Las Vegas because that's where he was. This is the only time I've ever gotten on a plane without luggage. And because I was just up there for the day, I, I had a jacket and I had the reel of, of, you know, tape. It was two inch back then, you know, so I flew up with the tape, went and recorded him, spent the day with him in the studio. It was such a great experience. Michael is so, he's a lovely guy. He's incredible in the studio. Um, when we started stacking those vocals and create to create that magical Michael McDonald blend, it was just amazing to watch the magic happen in the room. It's, it was unlike any other vocal double tracking session I, I had ever done before. But Michael couldn't have been nicer. He's, he's a terrific person and really gifted. And and it was uh, I was so proud to have him on my record. Cool. So let's um, we are coming quite a few years forward, but uh, you are here for a reason. And that reason is primarily to promote your new single, No yes. Problem. So yes. why don't you tell us all about it? Well, No Problem is uh, it's a blues shuffle. You know, it's kind of got a rock blues edge to it, but it's an old school blues shuffle. Uh, and I love a good shuffle. And Basically, this came about recording it because this was a song I had written a few years, actually years ago, and had never recorded or released. I, I wrote it for my TV band when I was music directing for late night talk shows and was writing songs every week. And it was impossible to record that many. But I had just it was a year ago I had turned 60 and I did a 60th birthday concert yeah i've seen and, it on the, oh no no i saw something else on the web it was your 25 years that's that was uh, right there's that's a 25 year best of cd my silver collection cd mm-hmm. is a collective um but anyway i i was was re- performing live and i had the great john robinson on drums and greg manning on piano hussein jeffrey on bass and uh louis louis conte was playing percussion and we did this wonderful concert and I played this song and it was really fun. And we tore the house down with it. And, and after the show, everybody in the band came up to me like a couple days later and called me or, or, and basically collectively, but individually said, we should record that song. That would be, you know, that came out great. We should go in the studio and record it. And so we did. And, you know, typically people don't go in the studio in Los Angeles, you know, people don't go in the studio to record just for the sake of recording. There's, there's normally like a, a show, an album, a deadline, a budget, and you know, everything worked out. We just went in for this and just for the pure joy of recording the song. And I said, look, if we go do this, I'll go release it. You know, I'll release it as a single and, you know, probably put it on my next record, but I'll just re- let's just go do it. So we recorded it. We recorded live, you know, all in the room together it was um, so it was John Robinson, Hussein Jeffrey, Greg Manning, and myself. And then I came back to my studio. Mindy A. Bear, who's a wonderful sax player friend of mine, came to my studio and played sax. And I added a couple of rhythm guitar parts and mixed it with Hussein and released it as a single. And it debuted number one most added on Billboard a couple of weeks ago. So I'm excited about the song. It's really kind of fun and in your face. And, and, um, it, it prompted you calling me to do your show. So. Well, well, actually, it was your PR lady that called me. <laughs> Excellent. Even better. Even, yeah. So, uh, yeah, smooth jazz. Give me a definition of smooth jazz. It's 
it's well, kind of is- it's like uh, it's like um, that's the sugar uh, alternative saccharin, isn't it? It well, it, it sure it certainly sounds that that way. Smooth jazz is is a term that none of us musicians came up with. I, I would never um, label my music anything, um, and if I did, I wouldn't call it smooth jazz. But um, I'm happy that people are playing it and calling it whatever they want to call it. It used to be called, um, or it was called contemporary jazz for a while. Um, uh, instrumental pop is another term. Uh, I actually consider myself a pop musician that has a rock and a jazz background and influence. But the bottom line is, clearly, if you listen to my new single, No Problem, there's nothing smooth jazz about it in my mind because it's not it's not watered down or sugared down or, or anything. It's, it's a, you know, balls out in your face song with us hitting our instruments really hard and, and breaking the sweat. We were, we were dripping wet at the end of the take, you know? So, but smooth jazz has really changed. Smooth jazz now covers R and B pop jazz, uh, blues. You can hear almost any kind of a style. It's become a mashup. So the term smooth jazz has become sort of homogenized. Well, I can't, I can't bang on too much about smooth jazz because uh, some of my tracks were picked up on a smooth jazz radio show. Well, <laughs> there you, you go. Know, sitting there, wait a minute, I don't want to be. And but having said that, back to my uh, fabled trip in LA, we're actually staying at the Roosevelt Hotel. Um, yes. And uh, as I was going up the lift, and I, and for some reason I mentioned this in the last podcast interview I did. Um, Pat Matheny was on in the lift. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Right. So, and I'm sure he's not going to be uh, too bothered about the old Kerching. Uh, anyway, yeah. Terry, um, I wanted to end by asking you about young people. Uh, it's a different industry now, different times and music and the whole way it operates and op- operates in terms of finance and all the rest of it. It's all changing. Uh, do you have any advice for young people who want to get into the business? Uh, yeah, sure. Of course I do. Um, a big part of what I do is mentor and I've got my own radio show as well called making it with Terry Wallman. And it's, it's, you can hear it at entertalkradio.com or go to iTunes and hear it as a podcast as well. But it's, we talk about how to make it in the, the ever changing landscape of the music business as well. So my, my advice is, is the same thing as when I moved out here, which is, you know, work hard, stay focused, show up early, have, have a, a great attitude, be of service to the, serve the song and serve your fellow musicians. And, and, and I mean, just, you know, look at how you can be, um, likable and a value to people and don't just, you know, think about yourself when you're playing, but think of how you can make everybody else's job easier. And that could be as simple as, you know, you know, being more musically, um, generous, you know, and leaving space for your other musicians when you're playing or literally holding a door open for somebody or grabbing an instrument or having an extra pencil and handing it to somebody because, those are the things. There's a lot of really talented and incredible musicians in L.A., in New York, in, in Scotland, all over the world. So it's not just about how good you are at what you do, but how, how good it feels to hang out with you when you're doing it. So just show up and give, give 100%. Don't save it. 
Yeah, yeah there's no doubt there's, there's a lot of nutters in this game. <laughs> <laughs> that is so very true. <laughs> so, Terry, I've got to say, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. you you're, you come across as a warm, uh, great guy, and you've Thank got you. a lot of stories to tell. And uh, I you, you, It's just great to hear, in a sense, some, someone... Uh, pouring out their life you know yeah i mean yeah. That, that's what it basically is so all that's really left for me to say is to wish you all the best with the single and the other music and i i hope you get up that billboard i don't know what that means anymore but i hope if it means anything you get up the billboard you know, <laughs> it 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 doesn't mean what it used to mean but it's still important and it leads to visibility which leads to conversations like you and i are having right now and and allows me to share the passion that I have for music and, and the excitement that I have for it and always will have it. And I put that into every song that I record and, and I hope you go listen to the, the song. It's called no problem. I have actually listened to the song. I've already listened to it. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. So to it's anyone else who wants to hear that, I'm going to ask, obviously once we end this interview, um, I'm going to ask Terry's permission or maybe he can send over a, a cut copy of the song, but, um, There'll be everything Absolutely. you want to know about Terry. I'll put links up to his websites and his Wikipedia and videos and anything else that he wants done and, his, of course, his, his own talk show. So, uh, Terry, thanks a lot, yes, man. Sir. Thank you. It's been a, a really fun hour. Pleasure to join you. Well, that wraps it up for another week, guys. I hope you enjoyed it, or at least not another week, but another podcast. I've already got a few more podcasts in the locker and working on them. And I'm sure you're going to be interested in them. I certainly was in undertaking the interviews with the various people. All the best to you. Remember, come on over to www.guitarmusicinstitute.com. Love to see you over there. And there are plenty of free guitar lessons and articles. Tell others about it as well. And if you are listening to us on Spotify, hello. It's great to have you on board. So from me, Jed Brocky, until the next time... Bye for now.